This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. I rarely get out of the city now that Martha is with child. She needs me here, she needs me there. I can hardly say I ever get a moment's peace. Well, you shall have it, my friend. Tonight we leave the wives behind. I mustn't stay out until dawn like in our university days. I would never hear the end of that. How about a cold drink to help us forget the burdens of the present? And remember the follies of the past. I think that sounds like a fine plan. As long as the first round's on you. Of course, my friend. Henry? What is it? Look out yonder. In the water. What is that, you suppose? I cannot see. Tis too dark. Tis large. Bigger than an animal. You are up to your old tricks. Come now. No. Help me untie this boat. You're serious? You mean to go out there? I mean to settle a bet I have with myself. Something ails me. Perhaps your eyes deceive you. I think someone is out there. Now get in. Tis it just me, or did the summer's heat suddenly turn cold? Tis not you. Do you see it now? My God! What is that? Tis as I suspected. Tis a woman, Henry. Dear God! She does not move. We must pull her out. Help me, James! <laughs> what fools we are. We need help. Over here! Hello there! There's a woman in the water! Oh, Lord. Henry, look. Her face. Poor thing. This is what the devil's dreams are made of. On July 28, 1841, Mary Cecilia Rogers, a famed local cigar girl working in a New York City tobacco shop, was found floating in the Hudson River near Sybil's Cave, a man-made refuge in Hoboken, New Jersey. Her clothes had been torn, and there was evidence of struggle and strangulation. James Boulard and Henry Mullen, looking to escape the city and enjoy a relaxing evening at the local hotspot, discovered the body. It was later identified by Mary's former fiancé, Alfred Cromlin. The announcement of her death and eventual murder turned the city upside down. The investigation became a national sensation, which led to changes in the press as well as New York law enforcement. She was only 20 years old at the time of her death, but amassed a vast collection of admirers in her few years. Several of these admirers were local newspaper reporters and editors who frequented the cigar shop. Could one of these admirers have developed an obsession that led to murder? Well, it's entirely possible. Some of her admirers even included authors such as James Fenimore Cooper, Washington Irving, and Edgar Allan Poe. Poe, of course. Didn't he base his story, The Mystery of Marie Roget, on Mary's death? He did indeed, and that we will most certainly get to. 
along with all the other strange players in this macabre and never-ending drama. Let's face it, the woman who garnered numerous admirers while she lived was bound to have many suspects in her murder. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, and the first installment of Mary Cecilia Rogers. If you want to review an episode of Unsolved Murders or to hear our investigation into other cases, you can find them all on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe. You can also listen on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. And now, back to the murder of Mary Rogers, who the 19th century press deemed the beautiful cigar girl. In the mid-1800s, New York was an expanding metropolis. Immigrants flooded into the city, driven by the city's promise of renewal and opportunity. Yet it was a city of contrast, a blend of impoverished and affluent. New and old technology, beautiful brownstones, and scrap metal shanties. Downtown was abuzz with trade and commerce, while uptown boasted rural villages and natural resources. The city was transforming at such an unprecedented pace that the government and its services had a difficult time keeping up. Well, that would explain why the law enforcement of the time was considered practically incompetent. <laughs> and why it was easy for violent youth gangs to terrorize the streets of New York. Well, just to be clear, rarely did these gangs sing Officer Krupke amidst choreographed dance. Right. These criminals were hardcore, known to rape and pillage. Closer to the Droogs and Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, then. <laughs> yes but without the choreography. Now, local law enforcement generally consisted of two types of officers. Roundsmen, who worked during the day for various fees and rewards, and leatherheads, who patrolled the streets at night. The latter gained their name from their predecessors, constables who often reported to building fires and wore leather helmets to protect themselves from falling debris. However, it was not uncommon to see these New York leatherheads sleeping soundly in their watch boxes while on duty, which gave local law enforcement a bad rap. Rightfully so. But the widely publicized death of Mary Rogers would set the stage for a new order, sparking drastic changes in the police department. Mary Cecilia Rogers was born in 1820 in Lyme, Connecticut, where she was raised until her father died in a steamboat accident, and her mother Phoebe transplanted the family to New York. Mary's one sibling, her older brother, was a naval merchant who rarely came home. But when he did, he'd go into alcohol-induced fits of rage, frequently triggered by his protectiveness of his sister. She was beautiful. Maybe too beautiful. In her teens, Mary worked at her mother's inn on Nassau Street. But it was an employment opportunity proposed by a local tobacco shop owner that really excited Mary. Struck by her beauty and magnetic personality, John Anderson, who ran Anderson's Tobacco Emporium, offered her a job selling cigars. This was a rare offer since women seldom worked behind counters in such a male-dominated arena. And because of that, her mother thought it was terribly improper. I shall not have you parading around in such a crude establishment. As a lady, you're much more fitted to the household. If it's more work you're looking for, I can teach you a number of skills that will be useful at the inn. But Mr. Anderson says I am unnatural. Almost indescribable, he says. The way I talk, the way I smile, my posture even. It sounds like his offer is not made with the purest of intentions. Tis not like that, Mother. He needs a profitable sales girl, and he believes I have such talent. The inn can be dreadfully dull. I want to experience the city, its beauty and grandeur. 
by immersing yourself in a cloud of smoke and brutish jargon? I shall not scrub floors for the rest of my life. Your tone suggests a level of disrespect I cannot condone. Mother, please. I mean no offense. I would like to accept his offer. And in doing so, I plan to contribute to the repairs needed for the roof. Now you're just trying to assuage my disquiet with empty promises. No, Mother. This promise I will keep. I can make double what I make at the inn. Mr. Anderson has told me so. It's true. John Anderson paid her generously because he saw how effortlessly she attracted male customers. And he valued her for it. I dare say, Miss Rogers, you have exceeded my initial expectations. You have surpassed my wildest ponderings. Thank you, Mr. Anderson. I have decided I am going to give you a raise. You are too kind. As long as you can promise me that no other shop in Manhattan has a chance of stealing you away. Of course, Mr. Anderson. I swear on this box of Ramon Iones. Okay, my dear. That shall do. That shall do. Loads of men, including her boss, John Anderson, were undoubtedly infatuated with her. One man described her as having a dainty figure and a pretty face. Another said she was ethereal and hypnotically pleasing. One man even explained that he would loiter around the shop for hours just to get a chance to talk to her. So what did Mary actually look like? There seems to be only one photograph available. In it, Mary is seated for a portrait. She wears a Victorian-era style black dress, which completely covers her body, save for her hands and her face. She also wears a shawl draped over one arm and a rather elaborate bonnet tied in a bow at the base of her chin. She had pitch black hair and fair, smooth skin. Her facial features are delicate and there is a modest elegance about her. I don't tend to go for that sort of buttoned up look, but I can see why men of her time would be drawn to her. And rarely does a photograph capture someone's true essence. There must have been a way about her. And clearly. She was a 19th century Helen of Troy. Humble, yet alluring. Young, but commanding. And, of course, absolutely beautiful. We might as well call her story the face that launched a thousand sigs. And to be fair, it was probably many more than that. The intensity and popularity of Mary's death was highlighted by the new form of press that arose in the late 1830s when James Gordon Bennett started the New York Herald. He reduced the cost of an issue to a penny, which marked the penny press movement, and he filled pages with sordid gossip and sensationalized local tales. Well, so you can understand the appeal of Mary's unsolved murder. And yet, this wasn't the first time her name made the headlines. That's right. Long before her ghastly murder, intrigue and mystery surrounded the beautiful cigar girl. In 1838, three years earlier, Mary went out one day and didn't return. Shortly after, her mother found a letter at the inn that she believed was a possible suicide note written by Mary. When she reported the incident to authorities, a coroner analyzed the letter. The diction used here in these first two lines suggests a young woman with an unalterable determination to destroy herself. I just can't understand it. Mary's been thriving. I haven't noticed one bit of melancholia. Those who choose to take their lives often repress thoughts and feelings showing one side to the world and another in private. Her true persona may be the very one manifested in this note. But where would she have gone? How would she have done this? That I cannot answer with any ounce of certainty, ma'am. Whether she has completed the act or not, I can assure you, there is ample evidence of intention. 
Well, then we've just got to find her. We cannot search after a woman who is left of her own accord. Why not? She's young and impulsive. Then I suggest you acquire some help from your residents. Are you not in the business of preventing death? How can you be so cold? I've seen such dramas unfold before. Please do not take my inaction as ill will. Tis nothing in my power to do. The New York Sun capitalized on the story of the elusive Mary, selling numerous copies. Missing beauty! Mary Rogers of Anderson's Tobacco Emporium vanished! Possible suicide! Read all about it in the sun! But just as quickly as suspicions arose of her ill-conceived suicide, accusations against the paper's credibility began. The Sun was considered one of the most trusted news sources of the day, until it published one particular story. Well, in 1835, it ran a six-day series about an English astronomer named Sir John Herschel, who had traveled to South Africa's Cape of Good Hope to study the stars of the Southern Hemisphere. The Sun's publishing of this report would come to be known as the Great Moon Hoax. The story described Herschel's construction of a massive telescope lens that enabled him to look at the moon as if he were using binoculars. What he apparently saw was out of this world incredible plants. Think of the planet Pandora in Avatar. And animals such as reindeer, mini zebra, and beavers who walked upright. Then the writer ended on a discovery of epic and nearly mythological proportions, winged humanoid creatures about four feet tall. Much like the 1938 radio broadcast based on H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, this story was a science fiction fantasy that editors never imagined would come across so credible and fool so many citizens. So the paper responsible for the great moon hoax was blamed by many as fabricating Mary's apparent suicide note. People even accused John Anderson of collaborating with The Sun in an attempt to bring more business to the shop. Now that it was entangled in a story of intrigue surrounding its most alluring asset, the one and only Mary Rogers. And then it happened. Mary returned home as if nothing was out of the ordinary. But her poor mother was in a panic. The authorities had been alerted, and the newspapers had imagined some lurid suicidal episode. Mary wasn't in any damaged state, and she hadn't written the note. Well, are there any theories on who did? Some historians believe John Anderson. Others speculate it was a couple of Mary's friends playing a joke on her. And then there are some who claim editors of The Sun concocted the whole thing from beginning to end. So what was Mary's explanation for her disappearance? She was visiting a friend and got tied up. Well, that's a whole lot of hullabaloo for such an anticlimactic ending. It seems her explanation was pretty vague. She was gone for days. That does seem odd. Sounds like there's more to that story. We'll come to find that Mary was harboring more secrets than she let on. Which could come back to hurt her. Right. Because the next time Mary would leave town, she wouldn't make it home. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. But before we dive back into the darker parts of Mary Rogers' story, let's learn about the lighter ones. 
Now that she had proven that in fact she had not suffered some strange accident or killed herself, she was able to return to the normalcy of life. And that included romance. Well, despite the myriad of men Mary came in contact with on a daily basis at the tobacco shop, it was a man closer to home that truly struck her fancy. His name was Daniel Payne, and he was a boarder at the inn her mother ran. Well, during the day, Daniel worked at a factory cutting corks. Well, back then, there was quite a demand for this sort of job since cork bottle stoppers were the norm, used in liquor, medicine, and perfumes. Today, they're almost obsolete. The material was stripped from cork oak trees and sent to factories where men would hand cut it to form bottle stoppers. Not exactly rocket science, but an honest living. Well, considering rocket science didn't quite exist at the time, I'd say it was. It didn't take long for Mary to fall for the strapping man. Daniel, would you care to join us for supper? There's plenty here. Thank you, Mrs. Rogers. I'd be delighted. Hello, Daniel. Good evening, Mary. What a fine bottle of wine. Tis from her employer, Mr. John Anderson. A rather unseemly gesture, if you ask me, but we're not in the habit of turning down gifts. A gift? How lovely. What for? My record. At the cigar shop. I surpassed my quota. Again. How impressive. How many did you sell? Just one shy of 300. That is worth celebrating. Shall I do the honors? Okay, but just a sip for you, Mary. Yes, Mother. Is there something wrong, Daniel? This cork. It comes from the company I work for. Does it really? Well, Mary, I too have a quota. Do you know how many of these I craft in a given day? I cannot say that I do. Hmm. It would be uncouth of me to brag. Let's just call it a tie. All right, Daniel. No, it was nearly love at first sight for Mary and Daniel, which, of course didn't sit well with her mother. There was only one man her mother approved of, a lawyer named Alfred Cromlin, Mary's former fiancé, whom she kicked to the curb because, well, she wasn't so gaga about him. It is believed, however, that he still held a torch for her, and had she changed her mind, he would have welcomed her back with open arms. The torch was so strong, even after their called-off engagement, Alfred moved just down the street from the inn to keep in close contact with Mary. I'm sure Daniel loved that. It probably wasn't his ideal, but Alfred didn't stand a chance next to the likes of Daniel. What are you working on? A doily for Mother. Her favorite flower is the mountain laurel. She will love it then. How was work today? Same as it was yesterday. The machinations of the factory are monotonous, but I have adapted to the pace. You should take a stroll to the shop someday, Daniel. See my place of business. And why would I do that? Well, uh, tis where I do my best work, where I'm at my best. Is that what they tell you? Tis not what they say, but I can tell. Well, they are wrong. I beg your pardon? Forgive me for my candor, but that is only one part of you, Mary. The sales girl. The elusive fixture in Anderson's Tobacco Emporium. Perhaps, but it is a substantial part of me. Your customers, or your admirers, whatever you see fit to call them, they only witness a fraction of what I do. I had the distinct pleasure of seeing you here, at the inn. The inn is just my home. It is. And when you walk through that door... You remove your bonnet, you loosen a button or two at your collar, and you sit in the parlor instead of stand behind a counter. Daniel. You plant flowers in the window boxes, you crochet, and you argue with your mother. You should not eavesdrop. I do not, but I can hear you. You are more than a cigar girl, Mary. That is plain to see. So those newspaper men who indulge in reckless spending just to get a glimpse of you, they are far less fortunate than I, for I get the best part of you. Uh I don't know what to say. 
It will come to you in time. I have seen you too. I mean, I know you quite well. Do you know me well enough to know that I love you? I think so. Do you think you love me too? Yes. Well, so Mary, would you make an honest man of me? You're fairly honest as it is, Daniel. You know what I mean. Mother will not like this. I could have predicted that. Well? Yes, Daniel. Of course, Daniel. It didn't take long before Mary and Daniel were engaged in June of 1841, but all was not blissful. Her mother, Phoebe, still didn't approve of Daniel as a suitable husband for her daughter. It didn't help that Mary and Daniel began to argue, too. I can imagine being around all those men in Anderson's cigar shop didn't help either. Hello, gentlemen. Can I offer you a La Corona? Or perhaps you were in the market for a bolder blend. Dos Amigos just in from Havana. I'm in the market for something bold, my dear. But tis not a cigar I am looking to wrap my lips around. My! Save those wily charms for the papers, Charlie. I believe I have had all I can stomach. Is that so? I heard tis been a while since that fiancé of yours has come around. You finally come to your senses? Couples do quarrel, Charlie. A truth as old as time. Now what could you two possibly have to fight about? A proper lady never discusses private matters such as that. A proper lady may not, but we sure can. To put it plainly, Daniel had a drinking problem. I won't have it, Daniel. Not here. Now you either forfeit the bottle or you forfeit me. You have no right to bargain with your future husband. I will not swoon at your every whim like those customers of yours. You have always harbored such disdain for my occupation. It's the one part of me you have never accepted. I have accepted it. I just do not hold you up on a pedestal because of it. I prefer the Mary who does not flaunt herself like a burlesque performer. Please, Daniel. You frightened me when you were like this. You brought me to it. How can you say such a thing? Well, this wouldn't be the only time Mary and Daniel argued. In fact, the two supposedly quarreled just days before her death. What about? It's not so clear. There is some speculation that tension between her and her mother over the engagement led Mary to think about breaking it off with Daniel and reconsider Alfred, who had remained a close confidant and advisor to Mary and her mother. Thank you for agreeing to luncheon, Mary. Of course, Alfred. Our amorous affections may have come to an end, but our friendship does not have to. I am glad you feel that way. Mother likes knowing you are close by. With my father gone, she sometimes worries about our welfare. What about Daniel? He worries about our welfare, too. No. No, I mean, I imagine your mother enjoys having your beau around to look after the two of you? Tis a bit of a delicate subject. But she has not shown him much grace. She will come around. I am not sure that she will, Alfred. In fact, I am having reservations myself. I see. I did not accept your invitation in order to lay all that ails me at your feet. Please know that you may. But I wanted to ask with the humblest sincerity that if anything were to happen to me that... What, Mary? That you would look after Mother. Of course, Mary. But what would happen... We have earned every penny on our own. Father did not leave us much, and my brother never visits anymore. I want to make sure her investments would be in order. Promise me that you would advise her with every ounce of your knowledge and expertise. I would do whatever you wish. May I ask, what ails this spirit of yours? Nothing worth addressing. I just feel better knowing that our family affairs are settled. You have my word. So, Mary goes to Alfred with trusted family matters, not Daniel. Hmm. This must have been a thorn in Daniel's side. A scorned, jealous lover who succumbed to the power of booze? Sounds like a credible suspect to me. 
Which scorned, jealous lover are you referring to? Oh, Daniel, of course. Although Alfred has motive now, too. He's closer to getting married than he's ever been before. If she rejects the poor guy again, it could be the straw that breaks the camel's back. But Daniel was the one with the drinking problem, and we know how calm, collected, and logical people can be when they've imbibed a bit too much of the sauce. Well, it wouldn't be the first time a drunken and resentful lover took matters into his own hands. Nor the last. Well, after their fight, Mary told Daniel she was going to visit her aunt, Miss Downing, in Brooklyn. It was only a 20-minute trip by horse-drawn carriage. Mary, what is it? I am to visit my aunt in Brooklyn today and will return in time for supper. What of it? Well, I'd like you to meet me at the carriage stop when I return. It will be dark. Yes, I imagine so. If you're so inclined, you could walk me home. Of course, Mary. We may quarrel, but I will not abandon you like some stray dog. Thank you. Is your fiancé worthy of a goodbye kiss? Of course. That would be the last kiss he ever got from Mary. Our story will continue in a moment, after a brief message. And now, let's continue our story. Mary Rogers set out in the morning, but she never returned. A violent thunderstorm was initially the suspected culprit. Both her mother and Daniel believed she wasn't able to weather the storm and would return sometime the following day when it cleared up. But instead, Mary turned up in the Hudson. Following the discovery and identification of the body, authorities questioned Mrs. Downing, who revealed that she had never expected a visit from Mary. In fact, they had never even discussed it. Uh-oh. Somebody wasn't telling the whole truth. So where did Mary go? Who did she see? Suspicions immediately fell on her fiancé, Daniel, despite his supposedly airtight alibi. He was searching for Mary throughout New York City with his brother for two days after she disappeared. Well, that seemed like a satisfying explanation, but when authorities interrogated him, there was one detail that irked them. When you heard that Mary's body had been found, why was it you did not go to identify it? I couldn't. I couldn't bear to see my Mary like that. I heard her face was covered in bruises and cuts, that her body was filled with water. I... I didn't want to remember her that way. I wanted her to remember as she was. Beautiful and tender. My perfect girl. But how perfect was Mary, really? What was she hiding? First, we know that Mary lied about visiting her aunt. And, shortly before she left on her mysterious trip, she apparently begged her employer, John Anderson, for a loan. I must say, Mary, I'm a bit troubled by all this. I understand. Tis to be expected. I have worked with you many long days and have good relations with your mother and your friends. I am fond of you. You must know that. I do. But as much as a man feels the need to look after a loved one, he must also look out for himself. I would not burden you with this if it were not a dire circumstance. Dear girl, you're nearly trembling. I mean not to. For God's sake, I shall help stiffen that upper lip of yours. How much do you need? The information about the loan didn't emerge during the investigation, but 50 years later in 1891, after his death in his will and testament... The authorities interrogated Anderson during the case, but at the time, he withheld this information about the loan. Which probably means he felt that giving Mary a loan would get him into trouble somehow. Well, so what was the loan for? Was Mary in some kind of financial trouble? Hmm. Gambling, perhaps? 
Or was she supplying a secret lover or friend with money? What double life could this simple and charming local cigar girl be leading? Daniel, his brother, and Mrs. Rogers became so concerned after a couple days of searching that they took out an ad in the New York Sun, the very paper that published the false news story about Mary's suicide. In it, they asked if anyone had seen a young lady wearing a white dress, black shawl, blue scarf, leghorn hat, light-colored shoes, and carrying a parasol. That's very specific. But they couldn't help but wonder. Since Mary had gone missing before and showed up alive and intact, was this simply the same story? Even so, they stated in the ad, they thought she could have been in some terrible accident. But it was no accident. The coroner's report made that clear enough. Gilbert Merritt of Hoboken took charge of the case at its early stages. Take this down, young man. The face is severely swollen. The veins on her face are highly distended. The body is badly decomposed. And the marks on the neck, sir? Indeed. Firstly, there is a mark the shape of a man's thumb on the right side of the neck near the jugular. The other marks on the neck resemble the shape of a man's fingers as well. Do you agree? Mm, I concur with that assessment. This strongly indicates strangulation. Mm, possible cause of death? I would bet most confidently on it. And the marks here, on the wrists, lead me to believe that her hands were tied together. To prevent her from fighting off her assailant. A wise deduction, yes. Now, moving on. The dress is torn in several places, and the damage done to the uh, feminine region suggests brutal violence, most likely perpetrated by three or more assailants. Three or more assailants? So now authorities were looking for a group of murderers? Coroner's report did spark suspicion of local thugs, which were becoming more and more common at the time, considering the lax law enforcement practices. Such thugs would continue to serve as a vague possibility throughout the case, but it was Daniel who would spend most of his time under the floodlight of accusation. Daniel's alibi was not enough for the papers. They voraciously pursued him as her vicious killer. And with these accusations came transformations in the press. Newspapers competed with an unprecedented vigor and desperation. No longer were front-page spreads dedicated to droll political legislature. And the news of the day was murder. And every new lurid detail drew readers like moths to flames. And it was by the power and influence of the press that New York law enforcement was harangued for mishandling the case. The commercial advertiser wrote an editorial that concluded with the scathing assessment, and New York remains the most unprotected city against crime in the United States, if not in the civilized world. Even the editor of the New York Herald took matters into his own hands when he claimed that he would create a reward fund for any person who could provide vital information relating to the case. Mm. Donations poured in, and he was able to raise funds that would equal several thousand dollars today. On top of that, drawings of Mary in the press were endless. Some depicted her dead in the river, bobbing in the water face up, the top of her dress torn, revealing flesh and a buxom figure. Others showed her behind the cigar counter or even showed her in a dress lying in bed, her eyes closed, seemingly at peace. There were poems and songs written about her. One song in particular became a popular ditty of the time. She's picked for her beauty from many a bell and placed near the windows Havana's to sell. For while her employer's aware that her face is advertisement certain to empty his cases. Mary became a national legend who would be immortalized by ink and paper, music and lyrics. But no matter how popular she was in life, it was only in death that she would truly remain in the minds of her peers. In life, she was an alluring attraction, an anecdote men shared on their lunch breaks or at parties. 
But in death, she was larger than life. She was an even bigger mystery. She was a question without an answer. And that was the most disturbing part of all. Soon after the announcement of the reward fund, a bombshell hit. A woman by the name of Frederica Loss came forward with information, what she believed was physical evidence from the crime. This mystery woman came out of the woodwork just in time to really stir things up. Her sudden involvement in the case would complicate matters and generate even more suspicion. Mrs. Loss ran a tavern called Nick Moore's House, where she lived with her three teenage sons in the scenic countryside. Her boys, whom she had instructed to gather sassafras bark for use in the tavern, wandered from their posts and crawled into a thicket. There, they came upon items of women's clothing, fabric from a dress, a pair of gloves, and a handkerchief with the initials M.R. embroidered on it. Let me get this straight. This woman claimed that her sons found articles of Mary's clothing right after a reward was offered for valuable information such as that? Well, that's right. And apparently the discovery of those items triggered a memory for Mrs. Loss, one which she now realized could be quite significant to the investigation. I saw a woman who greatly resembled Miss Rogers come into the tavern with a male companion. He ordered liquor and she ordered lemonade. They left about an hour after they had come walking arm in arm. I could not see the gentleman very well, except I could decipher that he was tall and dark complexioned. Mary with a tall, dark stranger. So who was this mystery man? There is speculation that he must have been from out of town. Because of the way that he dressed. Mrs. Loss didn't stop there. Later that night, I heard a scream. I could not tell from where, but I ran outside terrified one of my dear boys had sprained his ankle and fallen into a ditch. Well, but they were both fine and well. Was it just the one scream? Well, there was a bit of commotion in the woods, which I gathered was probably just some rowdies loitering about. Tis common in those parts. And why didn't you investigate it further, ma'am? I didn't think much of it. I, I have not a mind that goes to dark corners, you see, but maybe I ought to. Mm Mm-hmm. I see. Now, can you refresh my memory? The items your sons brought back to you? Yes, of course. They found some muddied lace, probably torn from a dress, a handkerchief monogrammed M.R., and a pair of gloves. Yes, tis what I recall from the initial report. But what is strange about the gloves, ma'am, is the victim was already wearing a pair when the witnesses found her. What would she need with two sets of gloves if she was simply visiting a relative for the day? I don't know what those city girls do. I barely have use for one pair of gloves, let alone two. But I imagine a sales girl must keep up a certain appearance. The duplicate pair of gloves is very suspect. Indeed. People theorize that Mrs. Loss planted the items in order to gain access to that reward fund. It's unclear, however, whether she received any money or not. Or could Mrs. Loss have been involved in some way? Was this simple tavern proprietress more nefarious than first assumed? And so, the thicket became the probable place of death. But after this break in the case, the investigation stalled, and so did the press's coverage. The mystery of Mary's death now made few headlines. And the authorities were ready to give up. I'm sure they were a bit relieved to have some peace. Peace never lasts long when a murder still remains to be solved. The trail gone cold only lasted until October 7th, 1841. That is the day Mary's fiancé, Daniel Payne, was found dead. But that's not all. 
His body was discovered at the very spot Mary met her untimely fate. Sybil's Cave in Hoboken, New Jersey. This discovery regalvanized the fear and outrage felt by many citizens and the newspapermen who knew Mary personally and wrote about her. The case was hot again. And so were the presses. Papers flooded to newsstands. The frenzy had returned. So, was Daniel, Mary's former fiancé, the killer's second victim? Or was he killed by someone else entirely? Perhaps by a vengeful admirer or a crazed citizen driven to a violent act by the media's urging? Or was it a suicide? What happened to this grief-stricken lover? And what happened to poor Miss Rogers? We'll find out next week on Unsolved Murders. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. A new episode of Unsolved Murders comes out every Tuesday. Let us know what you think and join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. We thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next Tuesday when we continue our investigation into the murder of Mary Rogers. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. If we, well, you know, if we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro with production assistance by Joel Stein, and written by Jessica Molo. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Janice Liebhart, Nicholas Massu, and Steve Pinto.